Welcome to Ghoul's Night Out with your hostesses, Brandy and Jody. Hello, beautiful ghouls. Welcome. This is Brandy. I'm here with my sister, Jody. Hello. So, we are on the second part of the documentary, Don't Pick Up the Phone. If we remember where we left off last week... So we had just learned that the calling cards from Buddy's call was purchased from a different Walmart than the original calls that Vic was was discussing. Um, And he called them to see if they had register cameras, and they do. So, remember? Yes. That's where we were. Okay. So they pull the tapes. He pushes play. He sees a suspect come on camera, puts his stuff down on the counter... It's a white male between 30 and 40, black hair, about six feet tall. He can tell that he's buying calling cards and he, he's got a really good picture. So holy cow, we have him. Huge break. He calls Buddy and tells him and he's ready to get this prick. Well, it's not the best picture and it's still from CCTV cameras. So And it's above where the people are. So they still need to go back to the original tapes and find a better picture of this guy. And they do, and there he is. Same guy, knew right away it was him. Very neat looking, um, like he was just coming or going, coming from or going to work. Then they notice a braid on the side of his pants. Oh my God, he's police. And that is the end of episode one. So episode two, we hear from Deborah. She is in Statesboro, Georgia. She is call or hoax call number 67. She stated that all of a sudden she was called back to the office, which had never happened before. The office was frighteningly small. She was in a small town. Now we meet Daniel, who is Deborah's twin brother. They were 18 at the time and went to college after high school. They lived together in a small trailer and money was super tight, but they did whatever they needed to to get by. She always wanted to be independent, so she got a job at Taco Bell. Daniel said that uh, it was about 3 a.m. when she came home from work and started telling him about this weird thing that happened to her at work. It was a Monday night in November. She was working a double shift, and her manager told her there was an officer on the phone that and said that a purse was stolen, and she fit the description of the person who had taken it. She was shocked because, no, she didn't do that. Um, and she had two options. One, she could wait for an officer to come do the search, or she could let her manager do it. She didn't even know what a strip search was. She didn't even know that was a thing. So she was naive, a rule follower. Daniel's back, and none of this made sense to him. And he he seems very confused as he was listening to her. It sounded so ridiculous. Deborah comes back on, and she's telling us that every time she would take off an article of clothing and hand it to her manager, he would read the tag over the phone and then put it in the safe. She said the cop was very calm, um, wanted her to start sweating so they could find money she had hidden. Which, what the fuck? What does that even mean? Like, they they wanted they wanted her to start doing, like, jumping jacks. So she would start to sweat so that, like, money would slide off of her. Like, it, none, of the, none of it made fucking sense. Not to mention the fact that one time he would be like, oh, well, there was money stolen. And then, like, the next time they'd be like, well, we're looking for drugs. So she needs to take off this. Like, so it went very inconsistent. Like, 
Again, why would you believe that? But anyway. Okay. She was basically rubbed all over, checking of everything. She had to bend over. She got scared and started saying no. Daniel comes back on and recalls her saying that she was told if she didn't do these things, they would come and arrest her. At the end, the manager basically said, fuck you, and hung up and tossed her clothes back to her and walked out. She said it lasted for hours, though, and she felt like nothing was real. She said a couple days later, she was told that no one had actually reported a purse stolen and the cop wasn't real either. And she looks extremely sad on this. Like, it really fucked her up. It's super sad. So Daniel says that if you tried to talk to her about it or ask her about it she wouldn't talk about it or just change the subject she was so embarrassed she didn't want it to be real and she she felt like if she didn't talk about it she could just ignore it uh, she said she quit her job after that dropped out of school lost her scholarship she was cut off for a couple years Daniel said that there was always a brightness and an innocence that she always had that was gone after that she went to a really dark place He's obviously fucked up over it, feels very guilty, he's crying, it's very sad. So now we're back in 2004 in Mount Washington, Kentucky. Buddy's back and again talking about how many victims there are, how long this has been going on, and the string of states that it had happened in. Couldn't believe that he had a case like this. There were 72 cases, 32 states, and the phone was still ringing every single day. All the calls were traced back to Panama City, Florida, but none had been solved. So many cases, but he was determined. So back to the picture of the cop that Victor had found. Um, we're back in pa Panama City. So this is a vacation spot. It's super hot. No one knows you. It's a perfect place for him to hide. And he's talking about the Wendy's cases again because they were so close together and making those calls had to take at least three hours. And he couldn't find any payphones that were hidden. And they were, all, they were all out in the open. So how can this guy stay there for so long and not get noticed? Definitely a power trip. So uh, he goes to the, the police department, meets with detectives, shows them the pictures. They don't recognize him, but he's definitely not a cop. So Vic's like, well, okay, why the police pants? And they're like, that's not a police officer. That's a corrections officer. So it's still in the right direction, but they have shrunk the suspect list so much, they're feeling really hopeful at this point, which is great. So they go back to the original story and start talking again how, about how unbelievable it is that this happened, and not only once, but over and over again. And while the caller is the ultimate villain in all this, the people like Donna Summers and her fiancé, Walter Nix, weren't going to get away with what they did. They had to be dealt with as well. So they, um, they allowed this to happen, and they took part in it as well. So Walter gets charged with a sex crime and was sentenced to five years in prison. Good. Yeah. Fucker. Exactly. Donna Summers gets a year probation, and they fired her real quick. Um, and now for the first time, we see court footage of Donna, and she's crying and saying that she's not a criminal and how much it's ruined her life, blah, blah, yeah, blah. fuck off. Exactly. No one cares. And everyone's just saying how fucking stupid it was that they didn't just hang up the phone. Just hang up the fucking phone. Or like I said before, they had... Options. Options, yeah. I guess. You can either wait for a cop to come, and we'll do it, 
or you can do why would you pick to I do know. it on your own I you're know. not a police officer why would you I'd be I know. like, no, I, we'll just wait for you. Exactly. That's exactly what I would do. I, I, And again, I mean, possibly when I was younger, I could possibly see myself maybe starting the process of, you know, what they're telling me to do. Yeah, but as soon as someone tells me to strip search someone, I, I'd be like, okay, you know what? No. Yeah. We'll I, just wait. I completely agree. I, I think that's what I would do, too. I would hope anyway. Oh, my God. Okay, so now we meet Dr. Jerry M. Berger. He is a professor of social psychology, and he starts talking about how stupid it was and then brings up this experiment, the Milgram study. So Stanley Milgram wanted to know why so many people would go along with authority figures, even if these authority figures were telling them to do something that was terribly wrong. So he created artificial situations in a laboratory working on obedience studies. In these, there were three characters. There was an experimenter, there was the real participant, and there was the actor participant. So the teacher would give the instructions to do a simple memory test. If the learner got the answer wrong, they were supposed to give them a little shock from the teacher. The shocks were not real, and the actor was always the learner. So, so the teachers were the people that didn't know what was yes, going on. Yes, they were okay. the participants. Okay. So the learner would give the wrong answers on purpose and then put on a show. Okay. So 65% of the participants continued to deliver what they thought was extremely painful or perhaps even lethal doses of electric shock. These people were agonizing every time they had to press this button yet despite the internal struggle and resistance the situation was so powerful they continued to push that button then they show a clip of one of these guys that was pushing the button and he was distraught like distraught about that you could tell this guy was freaking out about pushing this button and they asked him why didn't you just not push the button and he says i wanted to stop but you wouldn't let me it's crazy. It is crazy. Nobody was saying anything that would have pushed him that hard to push that button other than the original instructions to just push the button if they're wrong. However, when they pushed the button, they could see this pain or, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, this pain, yet they continued to do it. Crazy. So what that's telling us is that under the right circumstances, any one of us is probably capable of doing disturbing and uncharacteristic things. So now we're back in 2003 in Rapid City, South Dakota, and we meet Alan. Alan is call, uh, hoax call number 89. He says that within a few hours, he went from doing something right for someone to facing life in prison just because he took a phone call. He says he was gullible, but he is adamant that he believed this guy. He thought it was a police officer. He believed in authority. He believed he was helping someone get out of a situation that she was wrongly accused of. So now we meet Randall Connolly, and he is Alan's attorney. He starts saying this guy is telling us a story about an imposter posing as an officer over the phone. And now he's being charged with some serious offenses, including rape and kidnapping. And at this point, he was like, what? (laughs) And he took the case. So Alan was an assistant manager at Hardee's when he started. 
He was in his early 50s. He was pretty new uh, that he was pretty new that afternoon and he picks up the, the ringing phone and same story again about stolen money and an employee that fits a description from a customer. He didn't know what to think. And then the guy gives him the choices of having them come to the police station or he could do the strip search there. He said that she agreed that she would rather not go to the police station. So it was her choice that mm. she would rather not go. Um, he's I on wonder the phone. if that was all their choices. Like, do you want to go to the police station? I thought... That was the first time that that was said. Okay. Everybody else was like, we can come there okay. and arrest them. All right. So he said that... Um, oh, he's on the phone and he starts telling him this process. It was every piece of clothing that needed to be checked. Every detail um, he needed him to check everywhere. During this time, the young lady is on the phone with the fake guy 13 times. She can hear him as he's talking to Alan. Alan is back and says at one point he had her do jumping jacks so he could hear her doing them over the phone. It went on for two and a half to three hours. Oh, this is what I was talking about earlier. He found no money and thought it was done. And this guy tells him, oh, oh no, we need to search for drugs. And Alan was like, well, I thought it was money. But he continues with the demands, and including touching her intimately. He says it was then that he was like, okay, this needs to stop. And about that time, another assistant manager came in and was like, oh, my fucking God. He was like, what did I just do? Okay, so he's like, oh, my God, what did I just do? And he got the fuck out of there and went home. <laughs> he was shocked. Um, he said... He then started questioning the whole situation a little late. The next morning, he went back there, and there were two detectives there, and he was arrested with three felonies, two kidnapping and second-degree rape. There was a camera that was recording all of it. She actually asked him to cover the camera when this was happening, and he emphatically denied that. I guess one brain cell wasn't taking a break. <laughs> So Alan was found not guilty, but turned his life around. He lost friends over it, and you could tell he was really broken up about it. Do you think he's a victim? Yes and no. I just think these people are really, really fucking stupid. I feel I mean, bad for them, it's, you know, on some level. I mean, they're obviously manipulated. Yes. But think for your fucking self. Exactly. Seriously. So back to 2004 in Panama City with Victor. So not a cop, but this guy works in a jail. There's three jails in the area. They're going to all three. They talk to the warden. First one doesn't recognize him. Second jail, we meet, meet Chris Hubbard, and he was a corrections officer for 32 years. And at the time, he was at a Bay Correctional Facility. Chief told him that detectives said that they had some pictures that they wanted him to look at. They showed him the pictures, and immediately he said, yeah, that's Dave Stewart. Oh. They identified him. So exciting. So they ha they ask if he is employed there, and he says, oh, yeah, he's here right now. Oh, my gosh. They bring him out. <laughs> they cue the prices right. Come on down. <laughs> so the warden came back in, and is behind him was the guy in the pics. And Victor introduces him. him himself and asks why he thinks that they're here to, to speak to him and he says no i have no idea 
So Vic could tell how uncomfortable he was, and he was in there for 30 seconds at this point. Then Vic just says that we know that you've been making hoax calls in Massachusetts and several other cities across the U.S. He then starts to sweat and shake. Then he says that, um, he says, was anyone hurt? Thank God it's over. What? Yeah. Vic says, we know you bought the cards. Then David denies buying the cards or making any calls, then pleads the fifth, and the interview stops. Hmm. What? So now it's too late to surveillance him. They already, like, broke their cover. Yeah. And they need a confession. They need more evidence. So they go back to Panama City uh, PD and decide that the next thing that they need to do is search this guy's house. So he lived in Fountain, about 25 miles north of Panama City. Literally dirt roads, mobile homes, quite a small town. He has a trailer and a small shed on his property in backwoods. So like away from everyone. They go in and do a complete search of his property. They found numerous police magazines, several applications for police jobs in the area. They also found diaries, and he was already hired as a part-time police officer in a local department. They found notes that he was taking at the time. He was obsessed with being a police officer. Mm -hmm. It excited him. Um, This still didn't help Victor's case, though. They were finding nothing. Then they found a calling card, but they don't know if this can help. I mean, it's just a calling card. Yeah, I was going to say, what are they going to find? Yeah. He wasn't physically there. Well, at this point, they're looking for anything. At the, I mean, like anything that, you know, some some people who are criminals are really fucking stupid. And they like take notes and like keep them. And, yeah. you know, so at this point, I think they're just, you know, desperate yeah they they want to find anything and they need a confession one they didn't get one he said a few words but that wasn't anything and you know they can't surveillance him now they are he already knows that they're on his tail yeah that was stupid it really was it really was they're probably like motherfucker why did we do this this way yeah they're probably just so excited that he you know he was here they found someone Okay, so he has to convince the DA he has a charge. Um, He wanted a sexual predator charge, but it was just a hoax call, and he wasn't actually there. So Victor has found this guy, and now no one wants to charge him with anything. It's fucking unbelievable. Then he goes to Buddy in Mount Washington, And Vic tells him that he may not have enough to get this guy. So they meet with a judge and the DA and they get a warrant. They go to Panama City to get some justice. So now here comes Steve Romans, which is David Stewart's attorney. And he's saying that the police always think cases are slam dunks. And the police version of the story is almost never what actually happened. And he knows for a fact that his client is not guilty. Whatever. That's the end of episode two. So that one was basically just going over all of the hoax calls and we met meet or met some of the victims. They went over that study, you know, so just kind of um, again, I really think they could have turned this three episode thing into a two hour documentary, yeah. but that's OK. So we uh, start episode three. 
back in Mount Washington, Kentucky. And Buddy's back, and he says that it was about a 10-hour drive from Kentucky to Florida, and they had this guy in their backseat who had been committing this crime for 10 years and probably thought he was going to get away with it. All the evidence points to him and literally nobody else. Okay, so they don't have much, but it all points to him. He said it was very intense at first, but then they just started talking about stuff in general. And he worked as a a corrections officer in Panama City for a while. And before that, he delivered propane. He's like an average guy. He was married. He had kids. Not what they expected at all. He wanted to be a police officer more than anything in life. He wanted that power. Could you imagine if he actually ended up being a police officer? Oh, my fucking God. What would he have done then? So much shit. And he would have got away with so much more. Oh, my God. So he wanted that power. And he felt as... Buddy felt as if David thought that he was one of them. Uh. So... He was charged with solicitation of sodomy and impersonating a police officer. Buddy was satisfied when he was behind bars and he starts talking about the district attorney. So Steve thought it was a joke at first. <laughs> which, uh, I mean, I don't blame him. It was a very unusual case. He had a half a million bond, very high bond, which is good because he was a possible flight risk. Uh, it was reduced to 100000 and now he's out of jail and gone. Great. So now we hear a clip from a podcast in the background. And in this clip, it's from a podcast called Pretend. And what I got, it was stories about real people pretending to be someone else. And we meet Javier Lavia, I think. And... Or he's the host of the podcast, Pretend. So he starts off by saying that he found it hard to believe that there was one of these hoax calls. But then come to find out that there were over 100 calls in 32 states and had been going on for 10 years. Um, He was really shocked at how sadistic the calls were as well. And he had been getting away with it for so long. Who knows how many that weren't reported. uh, People also weren't warned about this caller. He said that he travels quite a bit and he would casually ask around in fast food restaurants if anyone knew about this. And no one had even heard it had been happening. And this is one of the reasons why it was able to continue to happen for so long. So now we're in 2002 in Statesboro, Georgia, back with Deborah. She was called hoax call number 67. She said that at the time, she had never heard of anything like this happening before. And the manager lost his job, but wasn't charged with anything that she was aware of. The Taco Bell was a franchise, so she sued the franchise owner as well as her manager independently. And her brother, Daniel, is back, and he states that it was clear that they were worried about a lawsuit right out of the gate. They... They didn't care about her well-being and made it seem as if she was compliant. Mm. They were also trying to bring down her character, a ploy to get her, there was a ploy to get her to not testify. The judge and attorney basically blamed her in in a way, and because she wouldn't testify, the case was thrown out. 
What the fuck? I know. She read the final statement of the judge, and it's it's so bad, I had to copy the entire thing, and I'm going to read it to you. It's so fucking bad. Listen to this shit. Quote, Courts should not be used to propagate culture of victimology, entitlement that degrades the very sense of individual responsibility and hard work on which this great nation was founded. The best lessons learned are usually the most expensive. At tremendous expense, the plaintiff hopefully will have learned to think for herself. That was his final statement. Yeah. What about the fucking manager? Basically, shame on you. Hope you learned a lesson. Basically, that's what they told her. So she goes on saying that it was it was too much for her to talk about what happened in front of a courtroom full of people. It was very sad. She did find out that the prison that it was a prison guard in Florida, and that that was all she knew. So now we are in 2007 in Mount Washington, Kentucky, at the criminal trial. Now we're talking about Louise again. Uh, several people came on camera and are talking about how, yes, the caller is the major villain in this story. However, there's also the places that allowed this to go on for so long without warning. Um, so Louise decides to sue McDonald's. All she wanted for McDonald's was to acknowledge that they were culpable in this and she wanted an apology for ruining her life. Not too much. So, Louise Ogborn hires an attorney, Ann Oldfather, and they sue McDonald's for $200 million. And Ann is known for being fierce. So now, here is Tom McDonald, and he's a retired judge. He served as a judge for 25 years in Louisville, Kentucky. He never thought this case would go to trial because of how bizarre the facts were. And... Now they're saying that this is getting heated. So one of the the PIs, so McDonald's hired private investigators for this. And he was hired by McDonald's and was arrested for impersonating an officer when he went to serve a subpoena to one of Louise's friends. Wait, what? So Louise one hires this really fierce fucking lawyer mm-hmm. and they sue McDonald's for $200 million. Yeah. McDonald's gets fucking pissed and hires private investigators to bring down Louise's character, um, subpoena her friends, learn everything that they can instead of just an apology, which is what mm-hmm. she wanted. Yeah. And 200 million is not that much for those fucking pieces of shit. Well, I don't understand, okay, I don't understand why it's McDonald's fault. Because it had been going on for 10 years and not one person was was warned. Not one person was warned. And did they know about it? Absolutely. We're going to okay. talk about how many settlements okay. they had. I get it then. Okay, so so they went after Louise so hard, they got her therapy notes, they attacked her social media accounts... Very much victim blaming. That's bullshit. Yeah. They wanted to point fingers at everyone but themselves. So McDonald's said that they didn't have very much on any previous hoax calls, but Anne didn't believe this. So she started researching, and it was obvious they knew the danger for years prior to this. Did, uh, Did they do enough to warn their employees? No, they did not. 
McDonald's admitted at, to settling six cases before, at least six cases before this related to similar hoax calls, but that's all they knew. Anne ultimately threatened them with sanctions to give them all they had, and they were ordered to turn them over. 48 hours before the trial, they handed over boxes and boxes of stuff. Oh, my god! With no time for them to go over any of it. And in that, it showed that they knew of more than two dozen illegal strip searches at their restaurants across the country. Two dozen! All they had to do was say, yeah. if you get a phone call exactly from a supposed police officer, hang up the phone. Exactly. They didn't even do that. They didn't do shit. That's bullshit. Yeah. At one point, McDonald's tried to say that Louise was in on it and she was just trying to get money. <laughs> McDonald's got the custodial worker, you know, the guy that ended the call. Mm-hmm. The guy that saved the day. Yeah. They got him to go up on the stand in court. And somehow they got the story that Louise was out to get money from day one. And the custodian guy was in was on the stand and stated that she told him that she was getting some money in, uh, in a check of some sort. He said that? He said that on the stand. That she told him that she was going to get some sort of money. <laughs> Anne was able to poke holes... Um, in this theory, um, but what's the jury thinking now? Like, yeah. you know, what what did that put in their heads? The jury watched the whole thing on tape. And if you remember, that call was three hours long. Yeah. Um, it was brutal and hard to watch. Absolute silence in the courtroom, except for a couple of jury members were crying. And Louise testifies. They basically said that she should have left. Uh, McDonald's clearly knew what was going on and they took no measures to even communicate that this was happening. And now they are taking zero responsibility and they continue to blame everybody else. So jury comes back and hands the verdict to the judge and they gave Louise that money, money. Oh yeah. She was awarded $6 million. Good. Yes, girl. Hell yeah. Um, it would have been very simple for them to notify um, stores and very employees simple. about the hoax calls, but they didn't. And the judge wouldn't comment when they asked, do you think McDonald's tried to cover this up? Uh, hmm. yeah. So now Connie's back and she said it was shocking to see what the civil suit um, that the details of how many restaurants were involved and how many settlements had happened that people didn't know about. And it was the feeling that it was trying to be covered up, which yeah. is pretty obvious. Yeah. So Elizabeth and Deborah come back on and they're talking about how stupid they felt after and how many people felt the same way. Uh, like, how dumb am I when this was happening to several others? So even knowing that there were others that that would have helped, you know, them get through this. But it seemed like they were actively hiding it. And this caller needs to be punished. So David remains um, in Florida until the trial, and Buddy is trying to get everything in perfect order while David is hanging out with his family, and Buddy is like, again, I, I hope you enjoy this time, because you're not, you're not going to get much, much more time free. So this is a huge deal. There is new news crews from all over the country. Everyone wanted to know more. This husband, father of five, no one had anything bad to say about him. 
Everyone seemed to like him, but Buddy's ready. Victor also has a great case. Now it's up to the courts to prosecute. They have him in uniform, buying the cards, coming into the store. The warden from the jail, he works with identified him. Is this airtight? So to the DA, no. (laughs) They had his work schedules that showed every time a call was made, he was off work and able to make these calls. But the district attorney comes back with, no, it could be anyone. So his wife testifies and said that they had set schedules and he had an alibi when she worked. He had to pick up the kids and he never confessed. And now they're thinking, well, who else could it be? So they're like, they're doubting themselves. So the jury comes back um, only after two hours and he's facing 10 to 20 years. They reach a verdict and he's found not guilty. Buddy felt like he was hit with a two by four. Victor's fucking pissed. I get it, though. Hell, yeah. I mean... I know. Nothing they can do can can change this. Everyone was stunned, but there wasn't enough evidence. They couldn't prove that he made these calls, but they think that they got the right guy. In the end, eight people were charged, but they were all managers, not the caller. And since 2004, the hoax calls have stopped. But have they stopped for good? So... My thing is, because it doesn't really make sense, if he is a father of five, and he was on the phone for at least three hours. Yeah. At a payphone. Right. How could he have done it? Exactly. Was it him? Do they have the right guy? Everything they found pointed to him. Everything. Everything. That's crazy. It is fucking crazy. I expected him to be single, mm-hmm. no children. Yep. And basically bored. Wanted power. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I know that doesn't, that does ha- there's no way. If you have five kids, no, yeah, that you can be on a phone at a payphone. Not even at your house. During, like, work hours for people. Yeah. There's yeah. there's no... Well, was this done during the day or at night? Uh, actually, that's a good question. I'm pretty sure that most of the victims that we met said it was night. Oh, okay. Which, I was going mean, to say, if it was during the day, then the kids were at school. Or if, if they're young kids... I know my... I had friends that would put their kids to bed at 7 o'clock when they were young. If he's got five young kids, he could totally have done that. Yeah, that's true. So I guess it would depend on what time were these calls made. Yeah. Where his wife was at the time. Because if she works nights and he's at home alone with the kids, he has plenty of time. Yeah. And if he's using calling cards, she's never going to find out. Of course, he would have had to have left the house and the kids would have been there by themselves. Couldn't you use calling cards from a, a landline? But they didn't say it was from a landline. They said it was they from... They don't know where those calls originated from, do they? I they, thought they knew they were from pay phones. They knew they were They knew they knew were from calling cards, and they knew the cards were purchased at Walmart. That was it. So how did the phone booth come up? The phone booth came up when Buddy first looked from the McDonald's that it happened to in his town. And he looked across the street and saw payphones in front of that one Oh, Dixie. so he's just assuming he it assumed, was from a payphone. He assumed it was a payphone. 
But you could use calling cards on landlines, couldn't you? I don't know. I never used calling cards. I didn't either. But I'm pretty sure it's so just So if a that number. was the case, then hell yeah. If he was at home. Fucking bored. After the kids Kid, went to bed. Yeah, kids went to his sleep. His wife's at work. Yep. Yeah. It could definitely happen. Yeah, more than it. He would be bored at home. Hmm. I don't know. And fucking McDonald's. Oh my God, fuck them. Send out a fucking memo. Yeah. Seriously, how easy would that have been? And then. You wouldn't even have to send it to the employees. No. Just the management. Exactly. Exactly. Because nine out of 10 times, employees are not answering that phone. No. No. But so, yeah, McDonald's, I think, is the real, like, super villain in all this. They, like, fuck them. They didn't do shit. Yeah. They knew what was going on and they didn't, they didn't do anything. That's just. And it would have been so fucking easy. And then when they were brought to, like, why didn't you do this? They're, oh, that's, that's your fault. That's your fault. Like, fuck you. Oh my gosh, this whole, I told you, the whole thing was made me it so mad. It wasn't just McDonald's, though. No, it wasn't there McDonald's. Was, I heard Taco Bell, I heard Hardee's. Yeah, there was a pizza parlor. I wonder if they told their management about it. That's a good question. That's a really good question. But I think it happened at McDonald's more than any other place. I think that's why, why they were, you know, looked into so much yeah. because it happened to them multiple times. They had six settled cases before Louise. And that's just the people who sued, you know? That's crazy. That was a good, that was a good one. Good. I'm glad you liked it. I was really shocked that I opened it up. I was like, oh, no, it's like three <laughs> hours long. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, it really did turn out to be just, just infuriating. So there weren't any more calls after 2004. No, they all when, stopped. when, what year was it that he got caught? I think it was 2004. And I'm pretty sure that there was an interview that was conducted in 2007. But I'm pretty sure 2004... Was when they went to the yeah. the correction place yeah. and found him and all that. Yeah. Mm. What a coincidence. I know, right? Yeah, I totally think they had the right guy. Oh, yeah, they did. And he got away with it. He sure fucking did. I hope that scared the shit out of him. You know it did. I hope it did. Oh, man. Karma for that and dude. And he probably thought he was, there ain't no freaking way anyone would ever find out who it was. Honestly, it was a great crime. Yeah. I mean, it was perfectly Because really, I mean, it, when you think about it, he didn't actually, I mean, he didnn't really do anything. He de- well, All he was doing yeah. was talking people into doing stuff. Yeah. Fuck and up. And they would do it. Yeah. I I can't I can't wrap my brain around. I yeah. I can't that. wrap my brain around one why they wouldn't question more, mm-hmm. two why they would continue to do it for such a long time. Three like what was he actually getting out of doing that? Like why? The power. But he can tell people whatever he wants, and they'll do whatever he wants. Oh, that's just he so got pathetic. off on it. That's so pathetic. Yeah, it really is. What a loser! Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I just God. 
I sure in the hell hope I wouldn't have been one of them dumbass people. Oh my god, me too. It makes you question it, though. It does. Especially that study. Yeah. Like, just because someone who you think has authority tells you to do something, when's the line? Like, when when do you not do it? It's well, you would crazy. think anything to do with causing someone else pain. Right. Which was what the study was about. Right. Causing someone distress. Or embarrassment or just, or, yeah. Yeah, any, yeah. anything. Yeah, you would think wrong. that, and I just, I know I keep going back to this, but the nudity part. Mm-hmm. Why did you think that was, why would you think that was okay? Why? especially Louise's case with how fucking dumb Donna was to bring her fucking fiance in there. That just, are you fucking kidding me? They, they should have got more than what they did, especially her. Yeah. She, a year probation. Really? I know. I know. That's bullshit. Ridiculous. So yeah, people are stupid. (laughs) Definitely. That was a, that was a really good podcast or documentary to watch. Good. I'm glad you liked it. I I was hoping. I was glad I kind of did like something a little different. We did true crime this week. But if you have any suggestions on any documentaries you want to know all about but don't want to watch, I will watch it and tell you all about it. So you can email your suggestions or stories. We still need those to coolsnightoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can look us up on Facebook, request to join the group, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen, and we will talk to you next week. Later. Bye.